Hello everybody. Um, thanks for joining me. My name's um, Natalie Pithers and I run Genealogy Stories uh, where I help people trace their family history. I also run um, the brand new Curious Descendants Club which is all about um, helping a community of family historians to write their family history and to share their family history stories. Um, and I'm joined here today by um, uh, Naomi Clifford and um, I know Naomi will do a much better job of introducing herself than I ever could as always. So um, Naomi, please can you say hello and introduce yourself? <laughs> well, hi everybody and, and hi Natalie, thank you so much for inviting me today. Thank you and for coming. Thanks for being here. Um, introduce myself. Okay, um, I am a history writer and journalist. Um, I graduated a long time ago in history, but um, I don't have a string of academic letters after my name. I focus on, you know, getting on with the job and writing the history. Um, and I, I focus on uh, women who are unknown. So I've written a book about women who were sent to the gallows in the Georgian period and um, um, a famous murder case in Birmingham and a, a, a girl who was abducted for, for forcibly marrying. Um, so I tend to focus on those women who are not well known to history and tell their stories. It's the stories that I like to focus on. Um, so uh, I've got a new book coming up in um, September, 7th, 7th of September, um, and that is looking at the diaries written during the Blitz by the mother of a friend of mine. Um, as I say, it's out on the 7th of September and it's called Under Fire, and it really tells her stories uh, story through her diaries so I contextualize it. I love that I, th I completely agree I think um, the, the stories are so important I think stories are how we relate to people um, mm -hmm. so I don't see why it should be any different um, relating to the past really. Mm -hmm. um, so um, you, you mentioned um, that the the book was um, uh, inspired by the, the diaries that you that you discovered your Mm -hmm. it was, was it you who actually discovered the the diaries and no they were give they were they were lent to me by a friend who okay. uh, a neighbor and she had re read some of them but she hadn't read them all the way through but she she knew some of the work i i i do and she thought i would find them interesting she thought maybe i could make something of them i think um, that's incredible <laughs> I think we forget that there are these little nuggets of kind of personal, or even little big nuggets of personal yes. history tucked away. Yes, absolutely, um, and it takes some time to get through them often or identify what they are. And, and years ago, I discovered a diary of my own grandmother who, um, uh, she was an American woman, and she came to Europe in 1914, the summer of 1914, on a, on a tourist trip around Europe. And she got stuck in, in Switzerland in, uh, as the First World War broke out. And that little book sat in my cabinet for years before I actually opened it and discovered that there was this amazing story. So oh, there wow. Yes. I um I kept a diary through the beginning of the pandemic and I keep I keep meaning to um go back to it actually and I haven't written it in a long time and it's it's a habit that I need to get back into. Um but I keep thinking, oh, I need to make sure I scroll that away somewhere so that somebody yes. has the joy of finding it in a hundred years' time. Absolutely. <laughs> and they will find it fascinating, I'm sure. Absolutely. So um so um 
how did you once you found the diary what was your kind of process for you know reading it and then and then um I'm guessing you kind of had to you know verify bits or, or research elements that she was talking about further can you can you tell me a bit about that well the first thing I had to do was actually transcribe it so type it all out it's, it's I can't remember, four or five volumes of extremely bad handwriting. She, she was unfortunately, uh, when she was young, she was left-handed and school made her write with her right hand. Um, and so it, it actually looks beautiful, the handwriting, but it's very illegible. And she had ter terrible spelling as well, particularly on people's names. So I felt the only way to get to grips with the whole picture was to actually type it all out. Um, wow. So that really took me a long time. And as I was typing it out, these stories emerged. So, you know, when I got to a juicy bit, I couldn't stop myself from, you know, trying to trying to get, get to the bottom of what she was saying. Because, of course, a diary is written for... A, a diary is written for many different reasons, but rarely is it to explain to a person like me what's actually going on to re a reader... 70, 80 years later, she she didn't have me in mind. And one thing was to try and work out who she did have in mind and, you know, try and look at things from that perspective. Um, so there are lots of things that really had to be delved into. And I found such amazing stories because, you know, she was very well connected and she did have a lot of famous names in these diaries. Um, okay. Some of the past, you know, passing references. Okay. But the big picture is is uh, started emerging when I typed it. Okay, and um, am I right in thinking she was not uh, an ambulance driver? She was, yes, she was an ambulance, an auxiliary ambulance driver. So the that service was an adjunct to the main ambulance service, and it was started because the government predicted that there'd be a lot of casualties once um, bombing started. So um, in London. It was, I mean, there were other, there were all types of services all around the country, but in London, it was called the London Auxiliary Ambulance Service. And, um, they would go to bomb incidents and take the casualties away. Uh, they had basic um, first aid, but they didn't, they weren't medically trained. They did what they could. There were medical people at these incidents, but uh, they would you know, basically cart them off to hospital or to the first aid post. But she was also a debutante. So she came from quite a wealthy family. And um, so she knew a lot of people and she lived in Chelsea where she, she had a lot of friends. Okay. Do you, is that, um, is, is volunteering in that kind of role quite, typically something that um that that wealthier women did rather than um perhaps women uh from more working class backgrounds well they certainly had more time on their hands and they were they were definitely targeted as a a, a good type of person to volunteer in the services and i i think it's quite well known that a lot of these auxiliary um services that attracted women, many of them were from the wealthier classes. Um, often, you know, working women, working class women and, and housewives, want a better word, they were too busy to do a job like this. But crucially for the ambulance service, these women needed to drive. 
and not many families had cars and not many women drove them. So the women who were driving were most more likely to come from wealthier families. Uh, and June had been driving since she was a child, you know, she'd been driving since she was 12 or something um, and was good at it. So, yes, she was ideal. And she was young, 25. Oh, that, that hadn't occurred to me, actually, that need to drive. Um, I just kind of, I guess I just maybe at the back of my head assumed that they, they taught them how to drive but, or, you know, didn't even cross my mind, really. No, they, they, they needed to drive. But I mean, they had places for attendance as well. So if you couldn't drive, you could be an attendant and you'd be in the back of the ambulance attending to, to the patients, stop them falling out of the bunks because the ambulances were fitted out with, with um, double-decker bunks on each side. So it's quite interesting that history of driving full stop because my um my great grandfather um he um when my granddad uh, had first learned to drive my great grandfather persuaded him to um, let him have a go in his car driving it and said you know well I drove tanks during the war so I'll be fine and apparently it was the the first and only time <laughs> that they ever let him behind the wheel and was absolutely terrifying uh, and when I got his war record it turned out that he never drove a tank at all <laughs> so, he'd obviously, yeah, so he'd obviously just made it up to get behind the wheel which I think is brilliant <laughs> um, <laughs> there's much more much more a kid with horses <laughs> but they're not so much driving <laughs> um so um uh, I, I remember when I was talking to you before when we were preparing for this interview and I'm just really quickly glancing at my notes and I've, I've got just a really brief note here that says um, that your family weren't, original, weren't originally from Britain um, and I'd made a note to ask you um, how that helped you look at the British experience perhaps with fresh eyes um, well, and that's I, as scant as my notice. <laughs> I, I think it, it has helped me. Um, my family was... Uh, came here in the 50s from the United States and they settled here in the, were in London and they never bothered to go home basically so I was born here um, so there was never any there were never any anecdotes about the war as such my father did serve with the US Air Force in Greenland during the war but um, there, there was never ex any sort of family experience of, of the war on the home front uh, and, you know, I lived in North London and there were lots and lots of bomb sites, which we were very happy to play on and nobody bothered, you know, about any safe health and safety. Um, but so I was, uh, you know, it's very present in my life, the war. And also I went to school with a lot of the daughters of Jewish refugees in North London. Um, but I think coming at it from sort of al almost outside, uh, does give me a different perspective on it. And I I certainly was never persuaded by some of the ideas about the Blitz spirit, for instance, and how this generation that lived through the war were somehow different in, in quality to anything that had gone before or came after. I was very much aware during the research that the things that they lived through, we can scarcely imagine. But I do think that if we had to face the same, there's no reason why we not we wouldn't do the same things. We, you know, people would volunteer, people would would help, people would pull together. And I'm not trying to be romantic about that, but you know, I th I think that I was never sold on the idea that that the generation that lived through the war were somehow touched 
with a magic wand and, and made more brave than anyone else. You know, so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, the Blitz Spirit, because I quite vividly remember, uh, you know, covering the topic at school and uh, and it was very, um, looking back, it was very romanticised. Um, mm. And um, uh, yeah, a, a, a very much, you got the idea that there were never any differences of opinion about perhaps how things should be done mm. or, or, or how rationing might work, for example, or people's thoughts on it or, you know, and that kind of... Um, mm. Yeah, kind of a a glossing of the yes. past, I guess. Yes, it's um, been romanticised, and the whole Blitz thing has been romanticised. I think it was absolutely awful and terrifying, and I do think a lot of people were unable to show how terrified they were. But it was, you know, there's no you you can't gloss how dreadful it is to have bombs falling on you. Um, no. and I. I I sometimes wonder whether we've glossed over that because it makes us feel more comfortable about current wars. You know, even though we might not be in that bomb zone, yeah. it makes us feel yeah. more confident about being the people I'm, that are doing the bombing or, you know. Um, that's a very good point. Yes, I do. I do. Um, but, with, I mean, I think the government really wanted the, the feeling of community and blitz spirit to be the sort of lasting um, impression amongst people that, you know, that they have, they, they must pull, or they did work together, you know, you can't doubt that. Um, but there were divergences of opinion and even, you know, June, she was traveling up and down from London to her parents' home, would be on the train and she would overhear people talking about things and, and complaining and saying, you know, I think it's easier to give in. Um, so people were definitely, um, uh, wondering why they were living like this and how long it would go on for. And I think, it, particularly in the East End, you know, they got the the brunt of it. And I, you know, I can only sympathise with the feeling that, you know, that they were suffering more than anyone else. And really, was it worth it? Um, we know it was, but. I, I can understand that emotion. Yeah, no, I can too. I think it's really easy to forget that we know how long the war went on for. And when yeah. you're living something, you don't know how long yeah. it's going to go on for. But even when you've lived through something yourself, you lose that perspective very, very quickly. Mm. Um, that that sense of unknown is quite yes. easy and quick. To, I, I only basing it on my own experiences of the pandemic. I I, mm -hmm. I look back at that diary that I mentioned, and um, there's a whole conversation I had with my sister-in-law that I recorded, where we were really really worried about getting food for the kids, and we were panicking basically, and mm -hmm. then trying not to panic by because we know that you shouldn't panic by, and then kind of panic by <laughs> because we were worried. Um, but very very quickly, I f I look back on that and laugh, and, and it's very quick to forget that actually when I wrote those words I didn't know how long that was going to go on for and, and that makes me relate to World War Two. you know you're living yeah. through something and you don't know when it's going to end. No um, it's a very acute feeling um, and I think a lot of people just subsumed it really and you know they, they, they were very practical minded and they thought oh I'll deal with it later so um, yeah it was a very emotional time but I get the impression that for some people it was really had to be tamped down in order to get on with things. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm guessing the experience must have been as as varied as life is 
now and the way I experience things. I mean, I'm, I remember meeting an old lady at a bus stop in um, Portsmouth where I lived for, for about 10 years. And obviously Portsmouth was quite heavily bombed being a doc. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she told me that she had driven ambulances mm-hmm. I, think, I think it was ambulances it was a long time ago conversation but what I remember from the conversation was her saying how fantastic it was and how um, they were some of the happiest years in her life because mm-hmm. she had this um, freedom that she'd never had yes. before yes. Um, and I I'm, perhaps she was an old lady looking back at it with raised yeah. tinted glasses but it you know but yeah. it's, it was interesting um, I, th- I think my woman June would say the same because she was 25 she had come to London, she was living in a big, a beautiful, big, crumbling mansion on the banks of the Thames at Cheney Walk. And Roman Abramovich and Mick Jagger, you know, they have part of that building or they have had recently. So it's an amazing place. It wasn't what it is now, but it was a fantastic location with a lot of other young people. Um, and she was having a great time going out. She was always, you know, off to the Ritz or or the 400 or the Café de Paris before it was bombed and um, having out for drinks and dinners and dances and parties or all the rest of it. So that was fantastic. You know, she was not living at home with her parents. She was sharing with people of the opposite sex, which was unusual at the time. And it was sort of permitted because... They had a resident nanny who policed them all very um, strictly and successfully. Um, so, yeah, in, in that way, you know, you can see that it was very enjoyable and it gave you freedom. And you also met people of different ranks and classes and worked with them. And that really was different um, for a lot of the posher end of things, if you like. You know, they were working alongside on an equal basis with people of different class. And um, it was a great, a lot of them saw it as an enhancing, growing experience to enrich their lives. And they were being bossed by people who were their social inferiors, you know, some of them. So it really, and I can't say that it, you know, permanently led to class. <laughs> you know the end of class war but um it was a good experience for many of them that's really interesting um and do you think so do you think they kind of brought into the feeling of blitz spirit at the time in in that you know to what extent do you you feel that people were kind of conscious that there was um a positive spin if not outright propaganda going on um and perhaps willingly suspended their beliefs um or or do you think people just weren't conscious that 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 was going on at the time i think there was a very real feeling of patriotism and you know i'm not here to define what that is but you know june um wrote out the words of the national anthem in her diary and they listened to the king on the radio and they took a lot from that um she attended I can't remember what it's called, some sort of um, amazing rally in in the Royal Albert Hall. Um, and uh, so I think people did enjoy being part of that sort of movement, the spirit that the, of the country, yeah, for sure. Um, but it wasn't all happy-go-lucky stuff. You know, there, there was a lot of class antagonism 
to generally and um, you get things like the incident at the Savoy, for instance, where um, an East, East End councillor brought four, 70 people to the Savoy. They were ordinary people and they brought their babies and their children and um, they went into the lobby of the Savoy and they demanded to be um, admitted to the basement shelters because posh people or rich people had good shelters Poor people did not generally. And the Savoy had these amazing underground sh shelters that had been reinforced. And it was a political stunt, of course. But And the management, you know, there was a raid going on outside. So the management didn't think it was a good idea to send people, force people out. They called the police, but in fact, they let them in. Just, um, But it really pointed up that there was a lot of... Um, class feeling if you if you look if you start scratching away there's a lot of class feeling and you know uh, that extended to food and restaurants and things like that so um yeah, yeah I think I think you were telling me when we were having our pre-interview chat that then I hadn't realized this that that um restaurant was it am I right restaurant food wasn't rationed yeah not at first not, not at, at first, first which um you, you could really get whatever you, you wanted if you had enough money yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was May 1942. Let me look at my notes. Um, Whilst you have a look, a couple of people have just joined to say um, uh, good morning, Jane, who I know is on the other side of the world. Hi, Jane. And uh, Caroline's just said hello as well. I just want to say hi and, and please do comment along with your questions. And I, I can see we've got quite a few people um, watching as well. So um, please do feel free to comment with any questions that you have. Um, yes, well, rationing, of course, was brought in to make people feel that it was fair, but actually it wasn't at all fair um, because, just like clothes rationing, which came in a bit later, um, you know, if you had a good stock of clothes to begin with and you lost a few, that was fine. You know, say you got bombed and you lost half your wardrobe, you still had clothes. But for poorer people, they got bombed, everything disappeared. So there, was, there wasn't really any kind of fairness in that way mm. but with food yes you could you could go to a lovely restaurant in London and have a slap up meal and pay and um and anything that uh, you you if you had an estate you could bring your pheasants or your rabbit or something give it to the chef to be cooked um it wasn't until 19 um May 1942 that there was an actual price limit set on on your meal so you couldn't spend more than five shillings on three courses and I think slightly earlier than that the rule was you couldn't have meat in more than one course so you couldn't have a meat starter and a meat main mm. but you could on top of your five shillings you could have your coffee and your wine and your champagne and your you know your um if you were in one of the big sort of hotels you could there was a sort of entertainment so you could have anything that you liked on in that way which is quite incredible really isn't it when you when you think sit back and think about it I mean I I, I remember this um this kind of infamous story about my my great-grand making um marmalade using carrot peel um, and using all her sugar rationing on 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 making this marmalade and um, her husband taking one bite of it and throwing the whole lot on the compost um, and her being absolutely livid. Um, and obviously that experience must have been um, very, very different to somebody yes. who could afford to go out and eat out for dinner. Yes, yes absolutely. And the, the government was aware of this 
obviously. And um, they launched all sorts of schemes to try and teach you how to make the best of what you had. Um, they they launched um, a, a, a thing called British Restaurants at the Savoy. So um, I think it was at the Savoy, but uh, Churchill basically uh, signed off on a scheme to to make to 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 establish a series of restaurants throughout a hundred towns, I think, in in Britain, where people could get a cheap meal. I think I can't remember how much one and nine pence or something, very um, reasonable amount. You get three courses of not very nice sounding food, but it was very fair and nutritious. Um, and then you had things like the the Minister of Food launching whose name is Lord Walton, so you get Walton's pie, yeah, which was vegetables, left with vegetables and pastry or mash. And I certainly remember being given this at school. Years later, I've got to say, I'm not that old, but you know, the, the cooks would have lived through the war and they made this Walton's pie on Fridays of all the leftover vegetables. And I've got to say, it was not a nice experience. <laughs> no, we were also still eating spam and things like, you know, spam fritters, though they were a thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, we still food, have spam fritters. <laughs> it carried on a while. And also when my parents came to England, they were astonished to be given ration cards. So rationing, food rationing went on far for years after the war. They had special cards as aliens. Um, right. My mother later donated to the Imperial War Museum. Okay. Alien ration cards. Um, I've just had a couple of questions pop up on um, on, on the subject of funds, actually. So um, Caroline says, what I found interesting was that many people were struggling to pay towards poor funds, including education, and were fined if they didn't pay it. And this was the case for 18 months before the war. Oh, Caroline, I don't know anything about this. Um, uh, this is this new to me it's an, an, an area I didn't look at because it didn't you know it didn't pop up when I was researching this book but that looks like something that really would bear um, investigating yeah I've not there doesn't ring any bells with me either so um, definitely something to go away and have a have a little nose around thank you Caroline yeah thank you for that um, and Caroline also says, um, were pubs serving food right. at the time? I don't think so. I don't think so. But it seems that um, alcohol was not in short supply. I think there was a lot of stockpiling of wine by restaurants before the war. Um, but I haven't heard of, of shortages of beer. Okay. But no, as I understand, they, they're just snacks, I, I expect, you know, a bit of crackling or pickled eggs but not meals they, they wouldn't serve meals no. it's interesting how food obviously would have varied depending on whether you live in the the countryside or mm. or the towns i remember hearing a story about um families in towns uh, i think it was in kensington actually um i think when i was researching my own family um all pooling together to buy a pig um, oh, and feeding the pig on scraps um there was a film, about, there was a film with um that guy from mm. Python. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, it might be. It might be a last forest. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I read something, but it might have been. It might have been yeah. something like that. Um, but I, I only think in Kensington because I know our. I know they the, used to call it the piggeries and the potteries, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure I remember reading about this this kind of article that said like, "Oh, return to the piggeries because some people had pulled together mm-hmm. to buy a pig." I'm sure, uh, but I might be misremembering. But yeah. yeah, that idea that you could pull together, buy a pig, feed it off your scraps, and then all, yes. all take yeah. it part of the spoils in a town. Um, very good idea yeah whereas obviously in the countryside you'd had you know nettles and wild garlic and mm-hmm. um all the berries and all the the joys of living in the countryside to help i guess mm-hmm. um brian's just saying i remember my aunt telling of an of the ultimatum she gave to your children if they wanted cakes they they wouldn't have sugar in their tea <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the sugar was very was was very much rationed yes because yeah. anything coming over from overseas was you know at a premium of course and I guess all the sugar was from sugar beet at that time so that you know there was not stuff coming from the West Indies for instance yeah yes yeah and uh Caroline's also just said she I guess people were already skilled in making wines from foraged items yeah Yeah, and that's probably true I mean we make elderflower wine sometimes down here and and you know um and nobody then drinks it And and some of these things are delicious. We've forgotten how to make them, but I don't count spam amongst those things. No, I've always but, wanted to do an experiment of trying to live off of rationing for like a mm-hmm. month and seeing, you know, what it was like. And then I can't get my, my maths is so appallingly bad that I cannot get my head around the measurements. So it's never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more to metric first and then I imagine it'd be all right. <laughs> when you look at the amounts, it's really not very much. No, it's tiny. It's yeah. tiny. But I think vegetables were not rationed. Yeah, yeah, which is okay as long as you've got room to grow them. But um, yes. but then having said that, there were a lot more allotments, I'm guessing. Um, and, and then... and also with supermarkets, you know, um, June, my, my diarist talks about going to Sainsbury's on the King's Road, which of course is still there. Um, and what she did, because she lived in this big house, uh, there was a canteen. So she handed over her ration card to the woman who ran the canteen and that woman did all the shopping from the ration cards in her possession um so there was a lot of pitching in with with that and and but then you know she could go home to her parents in the countryside and you know she never complained about not having enough food but that's really because she was well well off enough to afford it yeah yeah um yeah so and also, you mentioned about the differences in shelters as well. Um, yes, yeah, it's quite shocking, really, when you realise how bad these shelters were and how vulnerable the people are who, who were in them. So she she lived in this mansion, as I said, and they all they sheltered in the hall in in the middle of one of the residences within this mansion, or they went down to the very copious basement. But if you were an ordinary person living in in Chelsea and it was a very much more mixed um, population then Uh, you might there's some fantastic sort of red brick um, mansion mansion flats just around the corner from where she lived the shelters were concrete huts on the pavement level so they were just like a big square hut and you would go in there and they were not designed to be lived in overnight 
they were they thought the bombing would be in the daytime so the pilots could see but in fact most of the bombing during the blitz was at night yeah so you'd have to be in there for hours and hours and hours no proper toilet facilities and of course if a shelter like that uh got a direct hit it was absolutely catastrophic and that is what happened uh on the second day of the blitz in chelsea one of these shelters took a direct hit and it was it was appalling um so yeah it was yeah am what, i am i right in thinking that the certainly in the beginning the sheltering in the underground is is um, something that's been mythologized because originally they closed the sh they closed the yeah, underground they didn't, they, they didn't want people sheltering un underground they thought it would breed um uh, a sort of a, a shelter mentality of doom and gloom so you know rumors would spread or and, and the happiness would spread and i think the, actually the people in the in the ordinary shelters were very um distressed because of the the conditions and also the fear but um yes the underground was closed and then you get that incident in the savoy when when people turn up and demand to be let into the basements and that contributed to a, a change of heart about the underground and they started opening them up and um i mean sometimes before they were officially allowed in they would just break the locks and open them up and run down to the to the shelters or buy a ticket and go down to the platform, never leave, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But after they were allowed to shelter in the underground, then they began to build proper facilities. And you get um, one of June's friends worked with the Friends Ambulance Unit, who who didn't just do ambulance work, but they did sort of um, kind of community work and social work and medical um, assistance work. And they were down in the undergrounds and um, they were quite, quite efficiently run um so they it wasn't just a free-for-all there was there were rules and there were as i say there was toilets and various things so um and is yeah. that where you'd have an air raid warden potentially i i don't know kind of regulate those rules or air raid wardens i think were more on the pavement okay. level so they would go around and they would um on their bikes often and they would um report incidents they would report fires from incendiaries and uh, they would go out to instances incidents that they were aware of um and they would tell tell people to keep to the regulations so if you were showing a light if your blackout curtains were letting out light they would they would tell you off and possibly um take you to magistrates court for not for showing a light not being efficient in your blackout yeah. So you know, they were more on uh, look, you know, on the surface, but in the underground, you get the friends ambulance units and other groups who are running them. You, I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but I imagine the WVS, the Women's Voluntary Service, were down there too, and perhaps the Red Cross. Okay, yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? I guess. Um, so um, when. So all of a sudden you've got you, you well it's not all of a sudden is it because you've got a year before is it a year before the blitz happens so well, maybe... yes, the blitz started you know the big push for the blitz on the blitz was the 7th of september there were raids before that there was big raids on the 25th of august um so you get the battle of britain and and the beginning of of you know quite a lot of raids in that summer okay um, 
But, you know, on the 7th of September was this massive raid on the East End. And what happened was um, the Germans sent over one load of planes uh, and they dropped thousands of incendiaries. Um, Then that raid ended and people came out of their shelters. They thought, oh, God, that was awful, you know, but okay, back to work sort of thing. And what they didn't re- realise was this, there was another wave coming and the incendiaries were there to light up the, the landscape for the second wave of heavy bombers. And um, they did massive amount of destruction. So from that day, there were, I think, 57 consecutive nights of bombing. Um, and I think there was one night when it wasn't too bad because the weather was terrible. Um, you know, I think it sort of ended the, I can't remember how many 57 nights or where you, where you get to, but I think November, then you get a bit of respite and then it gets more sporadic. And after that, you get bombings on other cities around the country, but they would come back and there was some massive, intense raids um, after that, ending in May 41. And how, how... I kind of I'm using kind of finger quotes pre- prepared <laughs> were people for for the bombing and for it to be on that kind of um, at that kind of intensity do you think um, well the, the the government thought it would happen because because um, other uh, conflicts had seen civilian bombing of uh, so if you think of Guernica in Spain you know there had been other bombings on civilians so they were expecting it um but they kind of didn't really believe it so Churchill himself didn't really believe that Hitler would just try to obliterate or or blitz London civilians but he was wrong of course but when they when they were doing their planning they thought there would be a lot more um casualties so they kind of over planned for it um, but, you know, when it started, people really, you know, they took it seriously. But, you know, it's a bit like masks now. They were all given gas masks, thinking it was going to, uh, you know, the bombing would would start with gas attacks. Did they wear them? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's human nature. But, but on the other hand, the gas attacks did not materialise. Yeah. It's, I, I asked because my so my granddad lived in they lived in um, uh, Ricelip near Greenford um, and um, he was so my nan was evacuated they both lived there and my nan was about eight and she was um, evacuated and spent the whole of the war in, in a tiny little farm in Wales and um, and you know, still had contact with that family that 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 she was evacuated with you know well into her adulthood well into her late into their late years you know until they passed away um so quite a different experience my granddad was evacuated for two weeks to Milton Keynes and then his mum missed him too much and brought him back so he's he out yeah yeah so and I why he was evacuated to Milton Keynes more places seems bizarre to me but um yeah he was evacuated for the whole of two weeks very I think like in the first wave of evacuations and then um and then came back and then never went again yes because when they were evacuated nothing was happening yeah they thought oh well you know nothing is happening you know it was the the so-called phony war 
Mm -hmm. um, so why would you, you yes, if you, you would bring people back, yeah. Yeah, why he didn't go again though? <laughs> he always says it's because his mum missed him too much. Yeah. Well, it, it may have been too. <laughs> it might have been, well, she'd lost two other children, so it might, might yes. well have been yeah, um, in their infancy, yeah. so, but yeah. And they had two shelters. They had an Anderson in the garden mm -hmm. and, a, and a Morrison in the house. Um, uh, yeah. So <laughs> I love these little stories. Um, actually, um, Caroline's back again. Caroline has, has come to the rescue and said that the, the, the pig story is in the Guernsey Literary oh, Society book. But I'm sure I've read it somewhere else. But I am going to have to now double check myself mm -hmm. and see whether I'm, yeah. whether I'm remembering something from a book, which is quite possible. <laughs> Um, and she said some people living along the Midland rail line were fined for not blacking out their back windows yeah. presumably yeah. thought these couldn't be seen yeah I suspect you probably had a lot of that people thinking yeah. well like you do today don't you people thinking oh I just did slightly bend at the walls and it doesn't really yeah. matter because nobody yeah. can see I mean that's human human yeah. nature I think um, yeah. I think we're all guilty of that sometimes there was also um, a lot of suspicion that you know people were signaling to, you know traitors were signaling to the planes up above well you know I think realistically that just didn't happen you know there were there were ideas of people oh he went up to the roof and he had a cigarette and he was signaling with the end of his lighted cigarette it you know people were feeling fragile and and jumpy and and ready to suspect people and you know people under stress do that yeah you know, and I suppose then there was a campaign as well uh, to make people yes. you know look at what their neighbors were doing and be vigilant and yeah. I, I wonder how much um I wonder how uh, oh, kind of you know racism and xenophobia and um, and and then just kind of um, anti-class. Well, I wonder how yeah. how that must have made it. I think worse, yeah. surely you know. Um, yes, um, there were you know when particularly when Americans joined the war, um, but also just people from the Commonwealth. Um, uh, or oh, the empire, as it was. There were a lot of foreign people and refugees. So, um, big Greek community, you know, the, um, that June talks about, and uh, a lot of uh, displaced people in London at the time. There was, of course, um, just sort of casual anti-Semitism that people didn't really notice, but some active anti-Semitism, even from people that we would normally trust as you know, our guides through this time of year, the George Orwell said some pretty awful things. Um, so, yes, I mean, some people were very interested in these foreigners. I think um, June, my diarist, was one of them. She was, she was fascinated by people from overseas. Um, but there, yes, the, and, and the other weird thing was that London was underpopulated a lot of people left so there was actually room for people to live and Ch Chelsea had a lot of empty properties so these were filled with Belgian and French refugees to some extent. I, I want to talk to what extent um, th that I wonder how people felt when they came back and or, or not so much when they came back but how people who had stayed felt when everybody else you know returns because obviously obviously if you've got a loved one returning from the war there's the relief but then as you slowly see the city fill up again um yes. and just thinking about you know i think you know there was a huge building program af afterwards you know not immediately um 
but you know, people moved out, didn't they? Milton Keynes, you know, post-war, very much developed. People moved out from the East End. So um, yeah, London did fill up, and you know, then you get places sort of changing their character. Chelsea, that had been once very mixed and full of these refugees, they move on, and you know, then it, then it starts to change change characters to some ex extent. Um, so. I, it's difficult to be general about this kind of mm. thing you know it's it's very much anecdotal and and an impression and I, I don't know how historically how historical that is but my my feeling is that um that someone like June would 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 look at it very positively but that might not be the case for everybody that you know that London was sort of filling with with lots of interesting people from all over the world and how do you think people um, coped with um, that kind of constant threat of, of of losing your life? So you've you've got you've got the worry about people that have gone off to to serve, um, and then you've got the worry about yourself and your family and your friends at home. Mm -hmm. um, and how how do you think people coped with it? Well, yes, to I'm anxious. I mean, the anxiety was permanent, but you, you you couldn't live your life in a state of active anxiety, really, without collapsing. So uh, there was a lot of diversionary um, activities, I think. So June, for instance, going out all the time, um, dancing, drinking, you know, she would literally come off her shifts, change and take a taxi down to the West End. Uh, in a in the in a raid, so bombs and incendiaries falling everywhere, um, and climbing over rubble in Piccadilly and stuff like that. So there's there's that aspect to it. And, and one side of that, one diarist I looked at, that she said, "Oh, two fingers up to Hitler," and that was true. But there's also something desperate about it, sort of over drinking and over um, uh, burning the candle at both ends. And if you look at well, as I did at June's diaries, you just um, wonder how she got up in the morning to go on her shift again because it was constant activity. So that was one thing to sort of keep it under control. Yeah, I kind of get this sense of um, uh, uh, of people kind of living life to the full, but then that being right on the very edge of kind of yeah. almost being frenzied, of yeah. being a yeah. bit unhealthy. Um, well, she certainly, you know, her, her spirit certainly descended. Um, for ver for various reasons, you know the war, but but then she suffered a very um, a personal slight that was that was she found difficult. But she she didn't say much about that in the diaries, but she dropped little hints. So she'd say, "I'm feeling gloomy," and you know, "I'm feeling glum." I'm very you know everything is. She didn't quite say everything is black, but you know she she mm. she just little little sentences here and there. I get the feeling that she felt she couldn't elaborate further than that because if she did, the floodgates might open and she might not be able to function. By and large, people did function, but they might um, be have difficulty sleeping. They might be a bit jumpy. They might be prone to crying easily. Or um, so it came out somehow, and it probably continued to come out for a long time after uh, in the years after the war yeah of course and i not identified in the way that we sort of look more carefully at our mental health now yeah no i agree i i um 
certainly it's really interesting on one side of my family the war seems to have um, massive massive repercussions um, that lasted generations um, and then on the other side seem to to kind of skate through barely skate and it's um, it's it's always fascinating to me Um, but yeah I am I uh, I was going to ask something and it's just completely gone out of my head, but I just see it because I just noticed some of the comments um, come up and it will, it will come back to me in a second. But um, Caroline was just saying, were there were there many dances held during the war? Yes, there were. And um, at the beginning, dance halls were shut down because they were they were seen as if something happened, you know, if bomb, for instance, dropped on a dance hall, it would be catastrophic. And that and you know all the places of entertainment in the West End closed for a short time and then there was a lot of pleading to open them again and so um, various orders were made and they were allowed to open but for ordinary dance halls and there were chains of commercial dance halls as well um, uh, they were allowed to operate Um, they had to practice a quick exit so the lovely stories of the band um, playing very fast in order to get people to march out during their their practice to march out of the out of the doors very quickly um and lots of them were fundraising dancers so to, for for service charities for instance and june in when she was with her parents in hertfordshire she went to a lot of local dancers for that to do just that yeah that so dancing was such an important thing to her and i think it really was for a lot of people you know it's where you could really sort of relax and and let a lot of tension out you know that was and and we still dance for those reasons yeah I I remember what I was going to say and it relates actually it was that you know I think sometimes we forget that as well as having the the war going on people also had their everyday ordinary lives they were falling in love and falling out of love and people were you know dying of old age and having babies and all Mm. the things that you know make up an everyday life so to say well we're shutting dancing and we're shutting it four years I mean we've just gone through lockdown we know what that feels like for even a short time um it's not sustainable in a way is that I guess but especially when you've got all these extra pressures of of, Mm. um you know fears going on Mm. um uh, yeah, that aspect that you know ordinary life continues on you know just humming along in the background absolutely true and that was a revelation to me as well you know I thought everyone was only thinking about the war for 24 hours a day and actually that wasn't true no I think I think it's impossible to sustain that I think even when you're a really anxious person you're suffering from acute anxiety um okay I know maybe not acute anxiety but I guess there's still every other things going on in your life it's quite hard yes, to sustain no. in a way yeah um, um on, really yeah um so sue just said a consequence of bombing in birmingham was a housing shortage and my grandparents ended up living with with in-laws for many years afterwards yeah that, yeah I, my um i have similar stories in my own family tree so yes I, they did mm-hmm. they were indeed housing shortages yes. um I mean, some of the rebuilds were great, though. I mean, you've got a lot of concrete, too. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and prefabs, mm. you know, where I live in South London. Until just a few years ago, we still had prefabs up at the Elephant Castle. And they were so beautifully done. You know, it was, they've got great towers built on them now. But they were, they were lovely to see, really. 
you know, they were for lots of people loved prefabs. Yeah, know. and there's there's a few um, sort of 1950s to 1960s houses here, and their gardens are massive. They're much much bigger than the houses mm -hmm. built in the sort of 90s. You know. Yes. Um, oh, for sure. Yes, the the proportions were were much more. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Caroline just saying we had we had lots of prefabs in Willingborough too. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it was Caroline saying uh, many, many many women having babies as a result of short term relationships with yeah. a soldier and mixed race babies being yeah. born. Yeah, absolutely. And yes. uh, they, a lot of what you might, might call illicit sex, or yeah. for the times, you know, um, risky sex for the for the times that might result in a pregnancy. Um, and I think it was uh, I can't remember who it was. Um, who said that London was just one big double bed? I have to look it up. <laughs> My diarist did not have a lot of risky sex, but um, it was certainly going on around her. And um, yeah, I mean, there was again that feeling, you know, we might die tomorrow, so why not? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I don't blame them at all. <laughs> um, so, um, how did um, we talked about sort of some of the, the the kind of different experiences but how how did people help each other do you think what kind of things did people do or is there anything from June's diaries that surprised you about how people helped each other or came together well um it's interesting isn't it um uh, nothing stands out except for her real her service in the ambulance in, in the ambulance service um, and uh, for a long time there, there was no real compulsion for civilians to do anything at all. It, it took a while for the regulations to kick in where um, men of a certain age and women of a certain age had to sign up for something. So um, just join, it took her a while to join up because she really thought about what she should do. Um, and there was a handbook that had all the services in it and you could sort of flick through it and choose which one you thought you might be best at. Um, but it's, it's interesting, you, you try to help and then it all goes wrong. And her sister, for instance, joined the um, Women's RAF, the RAF in Liverpool. And she came back home after two weeks because it, it didn't, you know, she couldn't get on with it. She couldn't yeah. with it, and that was allowed. You were, you know, you were you were allowed to leave if it was it was really not for you. Um, and then she joined the Land Army, and that that didn't really work out either. And then she did something else. So uh, people had to feel their way towards what was the best thing for them to help. And then there was the element of compulsion that came in, and you know, and after the big raid on the city. There was a, a a lot of you had to do fire watching if you if you worked you had to take your turns fire watching, um, which people hated because it was very it it quick then you had to look up all the time. Yeah, yeah, and I just think it's boring as well yeah. because you know if there aren't any fires, it's quite hard to to maintain concentration for a long yeah. time looking for something that might happen, isn't it? Um, but I say contribution thing is very personal, and some people are not suited to working in a team in a certain way. So you just, I, I think most people did what they could and gave what they could. Yeah, sure. And and some people, 
you know the the very thing that they're best at is just being kind or just being um across a, a, a shoulder to cry on or yes. being that person that comes around with a cup of tea and that's quite hard yes. to quantify yes. um, and yet it makes a big difference they're the person that smiles at you in the street when you're feeling depressed yes. uh, and those kind of things so are so tiny and yet can make such yeah. a big difference to uh, like our lives now so I'm sure sure it would have been the same then um so Caroline's just asked um and just before I read out the question I'll just say if anyone has any last questions um please do pop them in because we'll we'll start wrapping up now because I've kept you um kept you kept Naomi a um a whole hour um so Caroline says um how do people keep in contact my grandmother was an American officer who was blinded and my grandmother was pregnant but she wasn't told so how would her family know about it before her how just going to reread that so how do people keep in contact my grandmother was an american officer who was blinded and she was pregnant not told i think i'm misreading your question caroline or or, or missing some of the gist in the typing but interesting um a question and um, you know, just reading through jean's diaries letters and dropping around with notes um telephones telephones were rationed so calls were rationed, I think, to three minutes, uh, certainly long distance calls for three minutes. Okay. So um, there were, she talks of lots of calls to the house. You know, there's obviously some communal phone there. Um, people taking, taking messages for you and passing them on. Um, but definitely letters were a huge part of it. And they did get through, you know. They, um, Presumably they had Telegram as well, or was Telegram... Yes, why well, I, I shouldn't forget that telegrams most definitely. So a telegram might say, "I'll meet you at the um, Mirabel at seven o'clock," you know, and and off you go. Or um, yeah, I think yeah. Or you'd call round to collect someone and then go out together. Um, but definitely all of those lines, or everything except the internet, really. Caroline's just come back to say it's her her grandfather was an American officer who was blinded and okay. her grandmother was pregnant and she wasn't told that he'd been blinded but how would her family her family knew about it before she did but maybe maybe he got somebody to telegram yes. um, or write a message yes. um, oh and Jane said and quite rightly lots of postcards too which are yeah. postcards are fascinating yeah. <laughs> um, yes, so yeah postcards most definitely yeah yeah. Okay. Um, well, Naomi, June sounds absolutely fascinating. So um, I'm, I'm conscious that I've, I've kept you an hour already. Um, but where can, tell us, what's the book called? When's it out? And where can people go and find it? <laughs> okay. So the book is called Under Fire, The Blitz Diaries of a Vol Volunteer Ambulance Driver by Naomi Clifford. It's published on the 7th of September, which of course is a significant date. Um, and you can find it on Amazon, on print, and it's also an ebook. So it'll be a Kindle book, and it'll also be on all the other ebook platforms. Um, yeah. So um, do do read it. I'd be very interested to hear what you think of it. Yeah. I certainly will. It sounds brilliant. I I can't wait to delve into it. There's nothing like reading about you know the words that somebody who was there and lived that experience. Mm -hmm you know put down to paper when they were on their own in the most private moments is there it's there's something so special about that and so rare <laughs> 
I should also say that um, my website is naomiclifford.com. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram mainly and a bit on Facebook. Great. I will make sure that there is an accompanying blog post with this episode as always. Um, it will probably be uh, www genealogystories.co.uk and then when you go there there's a, a, a tab that says twice removed and then all the latest blog posts are there but it will probably be something like slash Naomi Clifford um, so nice and easy for everybody to find and um, that will have details about Naomi her book and um, any of the other resources that we've mentioned I'll go check out the Guernsey um, Literary Society potato peels <laughs> story and see whether I'm actually losing my mind and I've just taken something from um fiction and made it into non-fiction or whether I've actually read that somewhere else too so yeah um thank you ever so much for joining me Naomi it was um it was a real pleasure and I, I feel like I learned a lot for great questions yeah thank yeah. you really interesting yeah. okay. thank you everyone and I will see you in a fortnight bye